0: Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started paddling the blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today's episode features Greg Stamer, and in this episode we touch on quite a few different topics. We'll chat about myths and misconceptions of Greenland paddles, a bit on paddling with Freya Hoffmeister, the people of Newfoundland, two foods that I would not recommend pairing, and the Everglades Challenge. It's a lot of content, it's great stuff, and a fun interview. So enjoy today's episode with Greg Stamer. Hi Greg, welcome to Paddling the Blue. Thanks for having me, John. Yeah, you've got quite a paddling resume, quite a unique resume. So tell us a little bit about what got you started as a paddler.
1: Well, you know, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and some of it starts out the same way. Um, (laughs) I was a water baby. It turns out my mother had a deathly fear of water. Turns out she was raised in Kentucky and one of her brothers held her under And she was so afraid of water that she did not want to pass that along to me or my brother, Jeff. So we grew up in Dayton, Ohio. And when I turned five, she enrolled me immediately in swimming lessons. And since then, I've constantly been either in or around water. And she kept telling the story. She was hoping that I would take the water. And, you know, she came back to Silver Lake on that first day, hoping I'd do well. And what did she see? I'm on the very high dive jumping into the water with, you know, all the teenagers. So I've I've always loved the water. Uh, I was big into the Boy Scouts. So in Ohio, I was often in a canoe, always swimming, fishing skipping rocks. Um, and in addition, my father loved fishing and being in Southern Ohio, our big trip every year was to go to Manitoulin Island, uh, Lake Huron, South Bay Mouth in Canada, and we'd fish for pike. And we'd spend three weeks, you know, fishing in small boats, you know, fishing in rowboats. And I think that's really you know, the start of where I just really love the water. And I, I loved being in a small rowboat by myself, the captain of my own boat, if you will. So I continued with canoes and it seems kind of odd, but when I was a senior in high school, Disney hired me. I, I live in, Or. this is, we moved to Florida. I live in Orlando, Florida now and I worked at the Davy Crockett explore canoes and you know, I was familiar with a canoe, but for this job, you paddle eight hours a day, you're paddle paddling this heavy cement filled canoe full of tourists. You're not on a track. You paddle day in, day out. And I actually gained almost 40 pounds and it was all muscle. And you know, when that job was done, I just wanted more. So I had enough money from that job. I bought a Mohawk canoe. And if you're familiar with Mohawk, um, their factory was just a few miles from me here in with Florida and took that on trips. You know, I would do overnight trips, load it down. And I was happy with canoes, uh, but I never saw a kayak and I was intrigued by them. Just never saw a kayak in the wild. One day there was a commercial on TV from a local outfitter and they showed somebody rolling in a pool and they showed these kayaks and it wasn't in this town, it was in Tampa, which is about 90 miles away. And that same weekend I arranged for a class. I drove over there. I took a car with a Chinook sea kayak, the first real kayak I'd ever seen. So that was, that was kind of my introduction. Huh.
0: So growing up in, uh, in the water mecca that is Dayton, Ohio, <laughs> and then uh, transitioning from there to paddling a cement canoe full of tourists didn't turn you away from the sport either way,
1: huh? No, it, it got me more into it. <laughs> and, uh, and once I got into kayaking, the, the first thing I really wanted to learn was how to roll because... Um, by this time, you know, I was certified scuba diver. I love these trips. You know, there's beautiful coral reefs out there. And Derek Hutchinson was actually a factor in getting me started. I read his books and it seems odd now, but I was in that outfitter store and there's an old book of Derek Hutchinson and he's surfing this wave and it's only like a two foot wave. It looks like nothing to me now, but at the time it's was like, wow, I'd love to do that. But could I ever do that? and i met derek i took my basic proficiency with him Um, uh, we became friends but through all that his books talked about paddling over reefs rolling over you know seeing the reef from the kayak rolling up and that really intrigued me so the very first thing i did was learned how to roll Um, the only problem was there were no kayaking instructors. This is 1984. Um, I know that out in, say, Washington State, near Seattle, there probably would have been a lot going on. Uh, but back then, I wasn't even aware of Sea Kayaker Magazine. So I found a book, and I enlisted my father to help haul me out of the water, you know, when I didn't succeed. And from this book, I learned to roll. And um, to me, that was always one of the great things about kayaking. And the author of this book it is uh, Lito Tejada Flores, Wild Water. You know, he, he kind of explained it and I feel the same way. He said, if you're a kayaker and you can't roll, it's kind of like downhill skiing where you fall down and you have to wait for a rescue toboggan. And I kind of still feel the same way today. So as soon as I could roll, it was much more enjoyable. Um, I I didn't you know, you still have to watch safety, but you can push your limits a bit. And once you can push your limits, you really start learning technique and very on, I just got very interested in all these techniques, uh, rolls and, you know, all, all the different maneuvering strokes. And at the time I had this big, long eight foot harmony paddle and i look at that today and just cringe but you know the salesman was very effective you know i was buying my new kayak he says well greg if if you're a lady or a weaker man you need a seven and a half foot paddle but if you're a stronger fellow, you need an eight foot paddle so i mean my ego obviously <laughs> i had to buy this big long eight foot paddle and i used that for a long time I, graduated to a Werner Kamano carbon. But by that time I had access to Sea Kayaker magazine and I saw an advertisement for a Greenland style paddle and it was by Betsy Bay. And when I was canoeing, I always loved the beaver tail shaped paddles. To me, those are just beautiful flowing shapes. You know, they look like they're designed to be in water as opposed to the paddles of the day in 1984 were very angular and clunky. And as soon as I saw that Greenland paddle, I said, well, that's beautiful. I need to try that. So that and your
0: passion for rolling is what kind of what drew you there, I'm guessing.
1: it, It was, but actually it was just kind of the aesthetics of the paddle. And then it was only then that I discovered that those Greenland paddles were just amazing for rolling. They create all this lift, uh, you can skull effortlessly on the surface, they have a lot of flotation. And I was hooked and, uh, and took off from there.
0: Alright, so then uh, you progressed on and then you started an organization regarding uh, Greenland paddling, right?
1: I did. In 2002, I founded Kayak USA. And I'm glad to say it's still going strong. But uh, what happened? I got more and more interested in Greenland-style paddling. Unfortunately, again, there was nobody who could teach you this. And what happened was there was a kayak historian named John Heath, and he and I became great friends. And he wrote in Sea Kayaker Magazine stories of the Greenland paddle and Greenland techniques. and I think it was around 1985 or six, he created a video called Greenlanders at Kodiak and it showed a Greenlander rolling in a pool in Alaska doing these maneuvers that just seemed impossible at the time. For example, he would sit on the surface, he would put the paddle under his kayak, capsize, and come up just by sculling, leaving the paddle under the kayak. And why that was so amazing to me is that I had started to study the history and I even have a book by David Krantz, Uh, it's from 1767, and it describes these maneuvers. And a lot of people talked about them and said, no, that's impossible, Uh, he got it wrong. But this was really eye-opening. Here was the first time the Western world was seeing a lot of these techniques. Uh, balance braces, which is a static brace where you're floating, you lean over, you use your balance, use a flotation of the paddle, and you just sit effortless with a kayak, you know, tilted on the surface of the water. And that was so alien to anything that was being taught at the time that it was just amazing. I do remember Randall Washburn, he he posted something, in, uh, an article in Cocker magazine, and he said, it's illogical that these these techniques work. And I remember reading that and said, well, what does logic have to do with a role? It's physics. Um, but the, the thing is, it was so different than what everybody was doing. Um, that Again, I was just entranced. And what I did and what people started doing across the country was they would get this video And in my case, I would draw the starting position of this maneuver, the ending position, go out on a local lake and just spend hours working out the movement, trying to make it work. And it would be failure over and over and over. And then when you finally did get it, it was just an amazing, an amazing feeling. And um, I'd be the first one to say, I, I don't think I'm a super athlete. I don't think I have I think my biggest asset is I'm just very tenacious. I don't give up. And I think sometimes that is better than raw talent. I would just keep at it. Um, But in the end, I learned as many of the roles as I could on that video. Um, And I found other people across the country that were doing the same thing. People like Cindy Cole, Steve Burkhart, uh, Doug Van Dorn in the Great Lakes, and we all, communicated together. Um, but what really rocked this whole world was when John Heath brought Maligiac Padilla to the Delmarva Paddler's Retreat, which was a uh, pretty well-established ACA uh, paddling camp run by Charlie and Cindy Cole. And he showed up in a sealskin kayak with a sealskin tulik, which is the waterproof suit that the Greenlanders wear. It, covers your face, and it's tight around the hem of the kayak. And he proceeded to demonstrate all of this. And um, the year after that, Kalarak Beck, who was the president of Kwanat which is the Greenland Kayak Association, he came and brought his wife Luna, and he was literally driven to tears by seeing that, you know, kayaking, which in Greenland you know, they treat the kayak as almost a sacred object. If it wasn't for the kayak, they would not have survived. And to see that it had exported, you know, to see what he considered pretty authentic Greenland kayaks on the beach, uh, again, he was really moved to tears. And he announced that, um, hey, uh, we have this annual kayaking competition every year. And next year, will you come? And if he hadn't asked me like that, I don't know if I would have come. That's a pretty um, frightening prospect, if you think about it. Uh, But I promised him on the spot that I would. And Harvey Golden, who you may know is uh, very well known for his kayak building books and so forth. We were the first American team to Greenland. And while I was there, they had a board meeting and they asked, well, how did Americans even learn about this? And how can we expand this more? And I said, well, what do you think about the idea of Kayak USA? And the goal at the time would be to get a team from the USA to come and compete and participate. And keep in mind, this isn't the Olympics. They they want you, if you participate, you're part of the party if you will um, and so kayak usa was born from that uh, th- what i wanted to do was to try to eliminate a lot of the misconceptions about greenland paddles i mean if you go back to 1980s you know uh, sometimes you'd almost get into arguments with people about why are you using that thing and um, you know there's still misconceptions today but at the time Uh, It it wasn't recognized in its own right as a true paddling discipline. So what I wanted to do was to break through all that, have an organization that could present the information, uh, be accessible. And I didn't really care whether Kayak USA, I didn't want to do things to propagate the organization. If we fulfilled our purpose, I was okay with it disappearing. You know, the goal was just to get the information out there.
0: So what are some of those misconceptions about Greenland paddling and how would you dispel them?
1: Well, I don't know if you can dispel them. And we can get into that with expeditions a little bit. Um, I'm sure you've heard them. Oh, look, Fred showed up with a Greenland paddle. Oh, my God, he's going to be slower than ever now. I don't know if I want to wait. You know, that kind of thing. Or, you know, even some very well-known coaches. And I think they did it kind of tongue-in-cheek, being Scottish i wrote something like well greenland paddles are good for a wee bit of fun but they're not really good for serious sea work uh, that one caused a big roar in the greenland community and you know i've taught in wales and you know a lot of these famous organizers have greenland paddles hanging over their thresholds you know above their doors and, but they don't really view them as efficient modern tools and when I started paddling with Greenland paddle, I was amazed at how well it worked as compared to, say, an eight-foot-long Harmony paddle or a big eight-foot-long San Juan Werner. Now, those paddles weren't horrible in their own right, but the Greenland paddle is sized to fit you. And not only is it sized to fit you, it's sized to fit you and your kayak. So uh, there was a there's a term in Greenland. Uh, I can't really pronounce it but a paddle and a kayak are considered it translates to dancing partners if you build a new kayak it's a little wider then you get a new paddle I mean they're that closely related Um, the paddle fits you you know you can extend your hand on it to any point that you want so you get leverage it's shaped like a glider wing you get a lot of lift very easy to roll surprisingly good forward stroke speed. You know, my speed with a grin and paddle is identical to what I get with a spoon blade. Uh, wing paddle, I do get a little more speed, but then I lose all these blended strokes I can't do. You know, my hanging draws and a lot of other things. And the grin and paddle rolls so well. So I was teaching in Wales and, we were were out, you know, you you go through the tidal races, which is a load of fun. A lot of people didn't think the Greenland paddle would even get me through the tidal races. Of course, it was no problem. The great thing about a Greenland paddle is that it's very neutral. And I know that doesn't sound very sexy, but you get the wind blowing 30 miles an hour. Now let's raise it to 40. It does not try to spin in your hands. If you get a beam wind, it does not try to capsize you Uh, it is a very seaworthy paddle that the rougher it gets uh, the better it does but when I was in Wales I hit this one wave that actually made my kayak pirouette it was a really beautiful picture on vertical and when that was printed it said roller Greg Stamer uh, pirouetting on a wave and I talked to the publisher I said what do you mean roller he says, well, you were there to teach Greenland rolling. That's that's what those paddles are for, right? And that's what you do, right? And I said, well, yeah, I love to roll, but I'm a kayaker. I want to do expeditions someday. These, these paddles aren't just for tricks. And he said, oh, well, you know, I thought they were just for rolling, is what this fellow said. And I had always wanted to do expeditions, but that really lit a fire under me that... Um, you know, maybe if I did a few expeditions and maybe i even broke the speed record using a Greenland paddle, maybe they would get some respect, if you will. And, you know, we can talk about the expeditions that I did, but actually uh, did a few major expeditions, broke the speed records, and the misconception still didn't go away. They would say, well, the paddle, it really isn't that great, but You know, Greg's just a good paddler, so you you really couldn't win. And ultimately, I decided, well, you know, it's pretty hard to change opinions. Um, I decided not to actively try. Uh, So from then on, I just did the paddling that I loved. I continued to teach Greenland paddling and wing paddling and just try to change minds by example, um, because I think that's about the only thing you can do.
0: So let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, Let's talk about some of the expeditions. And you've got several major expeditions under your belt. Um, I know you and Freya Hofmeister circumnavigated Iceland in record time. And you did a solo circumnavigation of Newfoundland, also in record time. Now, uh, curiosity, both of those, uh, let's put it out for the world. Did you use a Greenland paddle on both of those?
1: Uh, Yes, I did.
0: All right, there we go. So it worked. Um, and I'd, I'd love to talk all day on, on you know both of the expeditions, but we have to limit the funds somewhere. So I'm going to pick Newfoundland, and we'll talk in more detail on that. But first, I've got just one question about Iceland. You paddled that with Freya. What was it like paddling that trip with Freya?
1: At the time, um, you know, Freya and I were an item, and we had thought we had found adventure partners in each other, and we had. Uh, but our relationship was starting to fray. So this trip was kind of, we were hoping it would pull us together again. In the end, it didn't. The, you know, the challenges of an expedition are pretty hard at a relationship. Um, I would actually recommend if anybody out there listening, if your potential partner is a kayaker, go on a big trip. And if you survive it, you're probably pretty compatible. It's a pretty good litmus test. Uh, but unfortunately the the strains of the trip um, did not draw us together so instead of cooperating we became more like competitors for the beating the record that was an advantage because we were basically racing each other you know we would stop every hour for a five minute break and the turned into the goal was to be ahead of the other one at that break so for setting a record it was good uh, for harmony, it wasn't so much, uh, but Iceland is actually a very difficult. Um, it's a very difficult place to paddle. The, we started that trip with two crossings. Uh, first one was over fifty miles, and then the second one we ran into headwinds. And the t- total distance was a little over fifty miles. With you know what we had to do to uh, get to the start of the crossing. And that was a 22 hour crossing. And that was two, two of those back to back. But the toughest thing about Iceland was the southern coast. And it is this black volcanic sand beach. It's steep. The waves dump. They break. They've broken kayaks. They've broken the dreams of some other people that have tried to do this trip. And negotiating that breaking surf was um, was difficult. So that, to me, Iceland was a really good challenge. Um, You know, we had to spend as much time at sea as we could on that southern coast to avoid those dumping waves. It was 24 hours of daylight. You know, you're high up in the Arctic Circle. You could paddle as long as you'd want. Uh, But Iceland is also one of the most beautiful places I've seen. The northwest fjords. The scale of these waterfalls where you paddle under them and just the weight and the drumming of the water hitting you was actually painful. I mean, it hurt your neck to crane up to see the top of these peaks. And some of this landscape looked like uh, it it looked primeval. If you saw woolly mammoths roaming around, you'd say, yeah, okay. yeah." Let's <laughs> That's what's supposed to be here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that was Iceland to me, a beautiful place to paddle, um, just spectacular.
0: All right. So let's, let's get into Newfoundland. Let's talk a little bit more about that particular one. So let's first, why Newfoundland?
1: Well, when Fra and I were preparing for Iceland, we were invited to teach by the kayak club in St. John's, Newfoundland. So to prepare for Iceland, we actually did about a uh, five or six-day trip along the Avalon Peninsula, and we just loved it. And I I love Newfoundland so much that, um, you know, I wanted to go back. So after the Iceland trip, I set my sights on on Newfoundland. What's amazing about Newfoundland, uh, you know, the Newfies, as they call themselves, uh, they call it the rock. It is just this amazing place. Uh, You see puffins, you see millions of seabirds, seals. Um, icebergs, when you start the trip, you are paddling down Iceberg Alley, which is where the Titanic got hit. The, these icebergs calf off of glaciers in Greenland. They spent two to four years flowing down the Atlantic, down the Davis Strait. And then by ice, snow that's encapsulated this ice. So the uh, first day uh, I did a test paddle there, the local club took me to paddle near an iceberg. And you do need to be careful about that. They roll very unpredictably. Uh, they have killed people. Um, but we chipped off this little bit of iceberg, and it fizzles, it, all the air escaping, this air that's been there for thousands of years. And I said, so what are we going to do with this? And they said, you'll see. And uh, that ice went back and ended up being in a few cocktails. That was kind of the local uh, tradition. Um, but. You know, every day now, if I paddle near an iceberg, you'll just hear it fizz. You know, you realize this is a time capsule. This is snow that fell two thousand years ago, and um, just spectacular.
0: All right. So, how long? So, yeah, how long was that trip?
1: Uh, that one was it was about it was over a thousand miles. It was thirteen hundred miles, and I did it in forty four days. So I I beat the previous record uh, by twenty two days, and I, I didn't do any portages. There's a there's a few spits of land that you can easily portage that if you paddle around adds quite a bit of mileage but but i didn't want to do that but you know you know newfoundland kind of looks like your outstretched hand and if you want to do it fast you have to go headland to headland and the thing about that is that you know you're doing these long open sea crossings so uh, i think there was five of them that were greater than 40 miles i mean there were several that were like 52 miles 51 miles and to make things worse i picked the time of year that had the best currents but it it was guaranteed to be foggy and hadas feldman who's a great friend of mine who had who had had the previous best time she said why do you want to go when it's foggy don't you want to see anything but i I did go uh, during this fog, and a lot of these crossings were completely fogged in, you know, as you're paddling, puffins and other birds materialize out of the fog and scatter out of the way. Some cases, whales and other things were close by. Um, And the thing I would like to say about long crossings, they, they may sound a little bit romantic, but time stands still, you know, without the ability to see like a shoreline going by, even if you're going five miles an hour, it feels like you're standing still. There's nothing to gauge your speed. Um, but I would just kind of get in this zone. I mean, um, once I get into an expedition, what I love about it is you're living fully in the moment. You're you're living wave to wave. You're not worried about time. You know, people would say, "Are you lonely?" Well, why would I be lonely? I'm I'm there by myself, but I'm fully engaged. You know, it's wave to wave and the, the hours and the miles would just pass by. So, um, you know, so even though these crossings were long, uh, you know, I was fully engaged, you know, every minute of it, you don't get bored, but you know, it's actually quite dangerous. If the sea would turn, you would really be in trouble out there. So, you know, after four or five miles, you reach a point where you can't see the coast behind you and you see nothing but water, uh, you know, in some cases, 11 hours, 12 hours or more. So it's really a commitment when you, you set out on one of these crossings.
0: Yeah. I read one of your, uh, one of those huge crossings was 84K.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah. So and that's mean how long does it take to do an 84K crossing?
1: it depends you know some of these you'd be done in 12 hours it just depends on headwinds and the conditions uh the the worst crossing i ever did was the one i mentioned with Frya, where we halfway across we got hit with this huge headwind it's blowing about 25 30 and it took 22 hours to to finish this crossing and when you you get the shore you know you drag that boat up and you're just stumbling um, Uh, definitely take a rest day. Uh, But what I learned is that, you know, you have a lot more reserve in you than you think. You know, you reach a point where you say, I can't go any further. But if you have to go further, you can. Now, I wouldn't rely on that, but um, we all have a reserve that that we can tap into.
0: So when you did that, uh, did you do counterclockwise, clockwise? What was your direction?
1: For whatever reason, all of the British-style symposiums were always clockwise. Um, And I wasn't sold on that. But, you know, in the case of Newfoundland, that was the best way to take advantage of the prevailing currents. So that's why I went clockwise. Unfortunately, it meant I would get a lot of fog. Uh, But by the time I reached the northern tip of Newfoundland, which is right by Labrador, the snow would be melted. And some previous groups actually had to wait for the snow to thaw. So looked at a lot of weather data, talked to a lot of people that uh, live there and have done similar trips. And so the direction and time of the year was just to take the most advantage of the currents and the weather.
0: So aside from those uh, those huge crossings, what were the biggest challenges?
1: That's a good question. Uh, for a solo paddler, the biggest issue is how to handle your boat on shore, because you don't have anybody to help lift and drag this boat. And, you know, these expedition kayaks weigh about 65 pounds to begin with, and they have to, because these kayaks need to be tough enough that if there's a surf running, that you can run it up on top of rocks with a full load. Uh, The problem is you have 65 pounds of kayak, and then you have 30, 40 pounds of gear. You also have water, that's a lot of weight. So I would say that's the biggest challenge. And you can do it, there's several ways you can handle that. What was wonderful about Newfoundland was that the rocks there are often these big round boulders. And that is much better than sand. You know, you land on a sand beach and that kayak is not going anywhere. (laughs) Um, You can't pull it, you know, you have to unload it in Ikea bags and drag it half a mile up shore, you know, the gear and then the kayak, uh, with the boulders that you had in Newfoundland, you could just take that kayak and just pull it over those boulders. Like they were ball bearings. The, uh, you know, the kayak took a beating, but you know, in the end, all it took was some touches up to chine strips and keel strips and it, it was done. So, you know, the main challenge is is handling the kayak. The other thing, when I did that trip, that was 2008, there was no Google Earth. Uh, I didn't have any support team. So I had these paper maps. And the most memorable night that I had, I was paddling 51 miles. It was across White Bay, and this is the great northern peninsula where I'm heading south. And I picked this beach that on my chart sounded wonderful. It it said something like Sandy Beach. Uh, You know, it had this beautiful idyllic name. uh, But I didn't have anybody to scout it for me. I couldn't look at it on Google Earth. And after this long crossing, and if you've done a long crossing, by the end of it, you know, you have to pee. You have to stretch your legs. You're hurting. You just want to walk. You know, you're really in, you're, you're suffering a bit. And so I get to this beach that had this idyllic name, and it was about 10 feet of sheer black cliff. There was no place to get out. And here I kept thinking, I'm almost there, I'm almost done. I'll be able to stretch my legs, and you have to keep going, there is no option. I didn't know whether it was best to go right or left. I looked at my chart and said, well there's a town to the right that's taking me backwards but that's the best bet and i didn't think i could paddle another stroke but i was able to do that seven or eight miles to get into that harbor and and rest and and that's probably was the toughest night
0: so the best parts um the best parts of trips often come down to the people so tell us about the people that you met along the way
1: Yeah, if you get a chance to go to Newfoundland, uh, i definitely recommend it. You know, that trip, you know, it sounds trite, uh, but it actually did really restore my faith in people. Uh, The people of Newfoundland were so generous that I felt guilty. You know, I would show up to shore and then here would be somebody, you know, walking down. You know, he wouldn't even look at me directly. He'd look at you sideways, have his hand in his pockets, and he'd come and say, hey, bye. Where are you coming from? Where are you going? And that's a common way of greeting in Newfoundland, bye. Uh, and I said, well, I'm paddling around the island. And he says, oh, really? And you know, more often than not, that kayak would be loaded in a pickup truck and I'd be getting a cod dinner or a full dinner and I'd be telling my stories of the trip. And uh, you know, it, it was it was really wonderful. and you know, I received some criticism about that, said, well, weren't you taking advantage of those people? I said, well, you know, I didn't ask for any of that. And, you know, I still keep in touch with a lot of those people. But, you know, at some point, I avoided some towns, because it's like, well, if I go into town, I almost didn't want to bother anybody with that. So, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword. But, um, you know, I guess being a seafaring, you know, the, the Greenlanders, I'm sorry, the, the Newfoundlanders, you know, the fishermen and everywhere you go, fishing boats or they're related to somebody that used to fish for cod and dry cod. The, you you appear on the horizon and you appear on the beach. I think you're pretty disarming in a kayak, you know. you Obviously, you're not going to take something and paddle away. So I think people are very open. You're, you know, you're so exposed and you're at the mercy of the sea that, Uh, I think people, you know, they take sympathy on you, uh, whether that's warranted or not. But the Newfoundlanders were just amazing. Let me me give you a few stories. You know, this this one family took me in and he was saying, well, you know, how's the kayak doing? I said, well, the day hatch is leaking. You know, eventually I'm going to have to get some caulk and fix it because the day hatch is where, you know, ideally you're storing your satellite phone, your electronics. That's the last thing that you want to get wet. And, unfortunately, i popped that hatch open at the end of the day, and it was half full of water. So I had to dry bag everything. It added a lot of weight. That weight slowed you down. And so the, this one fellow who brought me in, you know, his wife was fixing me breakfast. And I, you know, I, I asked where he was. And he says, oh, he got up at 430 to, to drive to the nearest uh, town to get you the caulk. And he would not take payment for it. And you know, just things like that uh, happened happened more than once. And in some cases I felt good about giving back um, as I was finishing the great Northern Peninsula. Uh, the weather got bad. I, I wasn't going to be able to push into the night. So I pushed into this little town into this beautiful little rock harbor. And again somebody saw me land and invited me in. And this fellow had a sailboat, but, he hadn't used it in years. And when he heard about my story about, you know, paddling around the whole Island, it inspired him enough that he said, you know, you know, if you can do it in a kayak, I can do it in my 26 foot sailboat. So, you know, he went out and he started using that sailboat. And I heard from him, he did some big trips. So I say, good for him. So I'm, I'm happy I was able to pay back a little bit. Um, uh, but when the trip was done, uh, the, you know, the friends that i would made, they, Showed up at the end, and uh, you know, cheered me as I came in ashore, and uh, it was one of my proudest moments. I was a, you know, just really feel close to the Newfoundlanders. I, I'd love to go back.
0: You threw out a term earlier, "bye." Uh, what what does that term mean?
1: It's a corruption of "boy," so you know, you go to Newfoundland and uh, it's a hey bye, you know, you know. And what's interesting about Newfoundland, as you paddle around, you get different accents and on the southern coast I I went into one town and keep in mind I didn't have support so the freeze-dried food and the things that I brought along ran out you know within a couple of weeks and I was having to live off of whatever I could find in these stores and I these are stores are like almost like a 7-eleven convenience store you know something very close to the coast not a grocery. Um, very basic things and I went into one store and the accents were so thick that I was getting a headache and I could not even make out that it was English at first and finally okay it is English but it was such a thick brogue Um, but you get different accents I mean some areas are French some you get these deep Scottish and Irish accents you know I just I just loved all of it but the very first store I came to, I had run out of my freeze-dry. So, okay, I'm living, I have to go and live off the stores now. The only food I could find to eat were Snicker bars and bologna. <laughs> and I bought $50 of Snicker bars, a little bologna, and I said, oof, I hope I don't starve to that. But I um, made it around.
0: I hope you're not going to tell me that you wrapped the bologna around the Snicker bar and ate it at the same time.
1: No, I didn't do that. All right, that's good. But one thing that became a common theme was uh, people would see me and we'd talk and I'd say I was camping uh, in some public area and I'd come back and there'd be jars of moose meat. And, you know, most able-bodied Greek, uh, Newfoundlanders, a lot of them will take a moose or two every year. Uh, moose meat is really good. Um, but at first, like, what am I going to do with this moose? And it's in glass jars or it gets salt cod. And I got very proficient very quickly at uh, learning how to, you know, the best ways to eat that. And it turned out to really be delicious.
0: And the coast to be relatively unpopulated or, or, or otherwise?
1: Relatively unpopulated. In fact, um, the Coast Guard does not even have active stations or repeaters. Um, at that time, maybe they do now. So there were some areas where even if you put out a, you know, a radio call, um, not sure if you'd be heard. But what I didn't realize, you know, you have this map of Newfoundland, and you see all these towns dotting, dotting the shore. Well, when you get to them, a lot of them, a lot of these small villages were consolidated. Um, and there's some pretty sad stories, there's some very poignant songs where houses were floated um, in order to consolidate them where the government could say, okay, we can take care of you in this village. So all these far flung fishing villages, um, a lot of those came to an end and this government relocation and there's some kind of hard feelings about that even today. Um, but uh, these pictures haunt me. Uh, there's pictures of, again, houses being floated to get them, you know, across a bay to a new area. Some of them didn't work. The home sank beneath the seas. Uh, And, you know, you think of the pain of that relocation. It it was a pretty difficult time. Uh, So as you go around Newfoundland, you know, you have the big cities, a few of them, but you run into a lot of these ghost towns, if you will, where you could see where a church was. You would find these huge old engines that were rusting on shore it 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 made it quite interesting Uh, i'm the kind of person who actually kind of prefers i wouldn't say prefers being alone but i like solitude so that didn't bother me but um there were enough towns too that you could resupply and it, it is definitely good to you know get back together with people and uh uh, it was just a, a really good mix, so uh, I really did enjoy the fill-out.
0: So resupply as long as you're looking for a Snickers bar or a piece of bologna. Well, yeah, you <laughs> could you could always find that. <laughs> would you do it again?
1: Yes, I would. I would.
0: What would you um, do different?
1: I don't think I would do anything different. It's funny if you do a trip fast, you get some negative negative comments like, "Well, you went so fast, you didn't see anything." And uh, well, I just like doing them fast. So I'm kind of unapologetic about that. Um, you know, a trip to do, it'd be great to do a very slow trip where you you do every inch of coastline. So instead of making these big crossings, you know, you do follow the coast, go to every village. But, you know, for the people who say, you go too fast, you don't see anything. Well, if I'm going fast, I might be going four and a half or five miles an hour so. You know it's not like i'm in a jet boat going 60 miles an hour not seeing anything what that usually means is you're not exploring all the towns along the way and uh, i love to see towns but you know i love being out like the headlands that's where all you know the energy and the focus of the sea and wind Uh, you see whales that's where you see all these dolphins Uh, so if i did it again maybe i would do it to where i did see all the towns and just did it as slow as possible. Uh, I don't know, but, uh, you know, it's just in the doing. And if you have enough time, you just just go with the flow. You go fast when you want, go slow when you want. Uh, you know, that's what I would like. Because for these trips, I, I had a deadline. So I think it would be great if you had no deadline at all and you just move at the pace that you want.
0: Do you have a favorite wildlife encounter from that trip?
1: I had a few I had this, this humpback whale that came within 15 feet of me. And he rolled showed me his eye, just thumping his flukes on the waves. And you know, I was sitting there spellbound. And finally, I take my camera, I got to take a picture of this, click a picture and it goes memory card full. And then I'm trying to delete all these pictures I don't want. And by the time I did, the whale was gone. So I wish I just sat there and enjoyed the moment with him instead of trying to capture it on film. Um, But that was a north coast of Newfoundland. You would start to recognize them, you're paddling in the fog, and you hear, you know, these whales breathing. If you haven't paddled with whales, and they're very close, like, I mean, less than 100 feet, you realize that this is a whole room full of air going Beneath the water, if you're that close, you can just hear it. And this one whale uh, may have been sick; sounded like I guess he had something like an emphysema. You could hear him wheeze as he's breathing. You hear this, and but you could you could just sense the volume of air going, you know, a whole house full of air. And I heard that whale for a long time. And, uh, unusual encounter, but for some reason that touched me. Um, And then something that was very bizarre was that on the north end ran into these dolphins, these groups of dolphins that would, almost like they were at marine land, one would flip and jump and smack the water, the next would go, the next would go, the next would go, the next would go, so it was flip, bam, 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 and then it would repeat. And it was just the most amazing thing. And it's like, why are they doing this? I guess they're doing it for fun, or is it some way to fish? Uh, but you know, you didn't feel alone out there. You had these whales, you had these dolphins. It was really quite amazing.
0: Sounds like an amazing trip.
1: Yes, yeah, it was.
0: Yeah. So you're equally at home with a Greenland paddle as well as a wing paddle. You've, you've talked a little bit about both. So how did you make the transition from Greenland paddling to paddling for speed with a, with a wing?
1: Well, after I did these expeditions, I actually had to quit my job of 20 years. I, You know, if you want to go around Iceland, you want to go around Newfoundland, you need... You need a month off. You may need. You probably need to take two months off because you don't know how long it'll be to get there. And in my case, my employer said no. Uh, I had been working with them for 20 years, but they said, "Hey, we would not pay you what we do and put you in the position we do for you to take off for a month." And I said, "Well, I need this for my sanity. Um, you know, I, um, I, I like the money, but." I felt like I really need, I had this big wanderlust. I needed to do these trips while I could. And I didn't know if I could do them when I was 60 or 70. Uh, And I'm very, you know, once after I did that trip, I did go back to work and now it's like, well, okay. How can I get that same feeling of an expedition without taking a month off? and that's when i started doing ultra endurance races like for example uh some of your listeners may know about water tribe races they used to have some races up in the great lakes Uh, the one that i do is the everglades challenge it goes from tampa to key largo so for me what i wanted was how can i do something that feels like an expedition but I don't have to take two months off. I don't have to quit my job or get a leave of absence because obviously that's uh, not an easy thing to do. Um, And in the process, you know, these, these ultra endurance challenges, they're like an expedition, but instead of using the heaviest, you know, most durable gear, you know, you're not using a 65-pound British sea kayak anymore. Now you may be using, like, an Epic 18X. It weighs 30 pounds. It would be destroyed if you ran it up on rocks like you would that heavy kayak. Uh, so you look for different things. You're going for speed. On an expedition, i tried try to do 30 or 40 miles on these Everglades Challenge races. I've done, say, well over 100 miles. I try to do at least 85 miles a day. Um, and so looking for more speed, I, I got into, well, let me try out a wing. Um, I never, you know, I felt uncomfortable being put into pegs, like you're a roller, you're a Greenland paddler. Um, so, you know, I teach Greenland paddling, and now I teach wing paddling too, but I felt, how can you really contrast a Greenland paddle with a wing paddle or a spoon if you're not really good with a wing? Um, So, you know, I took a lot of classes on wings, I made friends and took classes with, you know, the likes of Oscar Chalupski, Sean Rice, uh, Hank McGregor, and more, and in all of these classes, though, I had decided I'm going to use both a wing and a grin of paddle, so my wing paddle was unfeathered, and I was the only one I ever saw using it unfeathered, and some instructors didn't even know how to deal with that, like uh, Sean Rice said, well, I'm not sure that'll even work but i'll keep an eye on him it turns out he said yeah obviously it works fine or ken fink um a good friend of mine that we've taught a lot together um he said i don't think you can use a wing with a it has to be feathered i said no it doesn't uh, so there you know i had to deal with that kind of thing it was actually hank mcgregor that said nope unfeathered is actually better and I, know, I didn't know if he'd kick me out of the class for using unfeathered, and here he's saying, nope, this is actually very good and, you know, things have changed. Now, Oscar Chalupski is now recommending that even surf ski paddlers use an unfeathered blade. And I don't know if that's from Oscar and me having all these battles over a beer or not, but, you know, things are changing. Um, but the point is, the fundamentals of a greenland paddle and a wing paddle, believe it or not, are actually almost identical. If there's different things about a Greenland paddle I won't get into, but as long as you rotate, plant the blade and use your legs and rotate using big muscles, your paddle doesn't come straight back along the kayak. It moves out in a V because that's the shape it makes as you rotate from the torso exact, exact same thing for wing paddle. So it might sound odd, but to me, a wing paddle and a Greenland paddle, feel very, very similar. And why that may surprise people, if you're really good with a greenland paddle, when you plant that blade, it doesn't slip. It feels like it's stuck in mud. If the blade is slipping all over the place and you feel like you're not getting any traction, let's say, uh, your technique needs work. And likewise, with a wing or a spoon, when you plant it, that thing should feel like it is buried in concrete and you lever yourself forward. So i love actually the feel of a greenland paddle um, i do like it more for touring than a wing because i still like to do blended strokes you know uh, you know a, a wing paddle isn't the best to do some hanging draws and things like that but if you want a little extra speed I enjoy them both
0: if you uh, ask 10 paddlers what the correct feather angle is you'll get 10 different answers and probably start an argument
1: you probably will.
0: <laughs> so uh, you mentioned yeah. the uh, Everglades Challenge. Tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about the story of uh, what, what's about the Ever. What is the Everglades? Sorry, let me start that again. Story of the race.
1: Well, the Everglades Challenge was the brainchild of Steve Isaac, and it, it dates back to 2001. And officially, it's not called a race, but I don't know about you. You get two or three paddlers together on water and it becomes a race. I mean, I'm very competitive. I mean, maybe that's not the case for everybody, but to me, to me, it's a race. But the first Everglades challenge was held in 2001. It goes from Tampa Bay down the southwest coast of Florida. You bend, you go through the heart of the Everglades. And I mean the heart of the Everglades. And this is where you get out of your tent And the mosquitoes are so heavy, or the noceums are so heavy, you feel them on your body like somebody just dropped 10 pounds of flour on you. Uh, That's probably one of the challenging things about this race, but you go through the the Everglades uh, and then you cross Florida Bay, which is one of the most amazing bodies of water you'll ever see. This is where all of that fresh water down the river of grass, the Everglades, flows, it enters. Uh, the ocean, and it's this luminous blue-green water. It looks like it glows, and it's very shallow. So if any wave action kicks up, you you get very intense, steep waves. And you have to cross Florida Bay and get to Key Largo. So it's, it's about 300 miles. There's no support. Nobody can give you any food or gear. You got to handle that yourself. Uh, but at checkpoints, you know, you, you, could, you could get resupplied. Um, but, you know, it's, it's had quite a following. Um, for example, Berlin Kruger, he was on the first one. Um, and the kind of a unique thing about the Everglades Challenge, everybody gets a water tribe name. Mine is Kayak Vagabond. Uh, because for years it felt like I was flying and doing kayaking in different places more than I was at home. Uh, Verlin's, you know, name was Rivermaster, but some real legends, you know, Verlin, Bob Bradford, who has the two-man solo Mississippi uh, record, you know, he's been on these. He's Night Navigator, um, you know, Mead Gujon of, you know, West uh, Epoxy, his name was Sawhorse. The weird thing is, I'm really bad at names, and I only knew some of these people by. Hey, Sawhorse, you know. <laughs> so now you got to learn their real name and their tribe name, which it's kind of challenging for me. But you know, people like Carter Johnson, who's done it on a surf ski, and then you know some some newer paddlers. People may know like Bobby Johnson, who's won the Alabama 650 a few times and beat me the last few races. Ron Price, who recently set the new Mississippi canoe record, Bob Waters and others. So, you know, if you go to this race, there's there's some history there and some really venerable paddlers have done it and, and continue to do it. Um, um, but what I like about it is you have 300 miles. You can either take a week to do it. I usually do it in three or three and a half days. I'm trying to do 85 or hundred miles a day, um, but it gives you an abbreviated form, that same feeling like i did in newfoundland or iceland where you're out there in the middle of a crossing you know sea turtles pop up sea turtles go down you know it's long enough that you feel like you're really out there but it's short enough that if you have a corporate job you can do it so um so until i retire um you know i've been happy to find that
0: well we wish you the best in your next everglades challenge we'll be watching for kayak vagabond well, it's been great learning your history and uh, the, the variety of types of paddling that you've done and the expeditions and the Everglade Challenge and learning about Kayak USA and uh, and everything. So, uh, Greg, how can listeners reach you if they've got additional questions?
1: No, I'm, I'm really happy to help anybody if they have any questions. If you go to my website, gregstamer.com, that's G-R-E-G-S-T-A-M-E-R, I do that website. I don't upload very much anymore. I primarily uh, you know contact people on Facebook. so if you're a Facebook person and you send me a friend request, I will most certainly uh, answer that and we can chat there. Otherwise yeah have any questions, comments uh, I'd love to hear from any listeners.
0: Excellent. Well we'll get connections uh, to those, those things your Facebook page and your website out on our uh, show, show notes so folks can make those connections as well. So again, I appreciate it. Uh, I do have one final question for you, and that's a question that we ask of all of our guests. And that question is, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue?
1: You know, I put a lot of thought into that and uh, paddled with a lot of people. And my choice would be Michael Gray. Um, Michael Gray is a good friend of mine. He has the uncanny ability of showing up. No matter where I am, if I'm an Iowa royal, he may pop up. If you're in Greenland, he may pop up you know, in Florida, when I finished the Everglades challenge, he's there. So I don't know how he does it, but he seems to be everywhere at once. And I'm a minimalist. I'm, I'm happy taking a freeze dried meal, or, you know, I may have made it sound bad, but those snicker bars and that bologna was okay for me. But what I really respect about Michael is when he goes on these trips, he, he really, you know, he cooks and he really eats well. And, um, you know, I don't mind eating well, I just don't want to do it. So I, I admire him for that and for, for all the knowledge that he has.
0: Well, I've uh, I've actually had the opportunity to paddle with Michael and uh, I've worked with him a couple of times. So uh, we'll certainly make the connection with him again here and, and get him on the show and learn some of that, uh, that cooking prowess that he's got. <laughs> <laughs> Well, again, Greg, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk and to learn from you and learn your history. It's been fantastic. And like I said to everybody, we'll uh, be watching for you in the next Everglades Challenge. We'll get links to all of your information in the show notes so folks can connect with you from there. And uh, we, again, appreciate your time.
1: I really appreciate it, John. Thank you very much.
0: If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, power to the paddle, is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat drive through the toughest waves or whitewater, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds. And who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. Well, I hope you learned a few things about Greenland paddling. I know I did today. I must admit, it's a tool I've not really used, but I'm going to set that as a goal for myself to give it a try and, uh, and see how it works for me. As for Newfoundland, proof again that people always make the difference. Our next show will feature Laura Zelliger. Laura is a respected coach on the U.S. West Coast, and she'll be sharing her take on cultural immersion in the fearless Formosa expedition through Taiwan. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music,